It was a Sunday before Thanksgiving, and the kindergarten teacher in a Sunday school class decided she wanted to help her kids understand Thanksgiving a little more, and so she came up with a creative idea. She was going to come up with a, a number of contrary statements, things that don't really fit Thanksgiving, and she was going to throw those out just to see how the kids would react. And she said, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up this coming Thursday, and you know, at Thanksgiving, that's a day when we think about all the stuff that we have and how we want to get more and how we want stuff and we don't want other people to have it. And the kids were all shouting, no, 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 that's not right. And then one little kid from the back said, no, Miss Smith, that's not Thanksgiving, that's Christmas. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that for many people, our, our view of Christmas may have been altered by commercialism and one of the things that we've been trying to do during this Advent conspiracy is to rearrange our thinking a little bit and begin to think about Christmas in a, in a little bit different way. If you'll remember, the, the Advent conspiracy had four portions to it. It began when we talked about loving more. or we used, The term we used was loving large because we wanted, we wanted to expand and grow our love. And, and then we talked about spending less, not just for the sake of saving money, but so that we might give more. All three of those elements are vitally important as we rearrange our thinking about what Christmas is. As we participate in this Advent conspiracy, but Christmas is not simply about rearranging our spending priorities so that we can be more generous. And Christmas is not simply about finding ways to show love to others in a tangible way. Or you see, there's a fourth element that we can't leave out. And that is to worship fully. For Christmas is about worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas really boils down to. Someone perceptive has said, once again, we come to the holiday season, a deeply religious time of year that, where each of us observes in his own way by going to the mall of his choice. I think that may sum it up for some people. And what we've said over the course of these last few weeks is the way that we spend our time and the way that we spend our money and the way that we spend our energy is a testimony to the priorities that we have in life. And so now when we come to worship, does simply saying that we worship Jesus, is that, is that enough? Does that really get to the heart of it? God spoke through the prophet Isaiah these words. These people come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Imagine that. People who come near to God and they say the right things and they sing the right things, but their heart is far, far away. Let it not be said of us this Christmas season that our worship was shallow. Let it not be said of us this Christmas season that our worship was merely lip service, but instead, let it be said of us that we truly worshiped Jesus with all our hearts and that we honored him with the fruit of our lives and that we reflected his love into a world that's hurting and broken to help us to understand how we can worship fully. There's a beautiful picture of worship that we find in the Christmas story. And we're going to find it in Matthew's gospel, the second chapter, 
verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's true and holy word? If you do not have your Bibles, the words will be placed on the screen for you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and apply the truth of your word to our lives so that we might indeed be changed forever. For this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. You've heard this story over and over and over again. And depending on uh, the timing of it, it, the focus may have been on this guy named Herod. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you need to know if you don't know, this guy named King Herod was a bad, bad dude. He was not actually Jewish. He was Idumean, and the Jews didn't like him too much, but he was powerful. He, he, was, he would have been very successful in Washington. He knew the ways of politics. He knew which skids to grease. He knew who to bribe. He knew who to flatter. And he did produce results. As a matter of fact, the temple was restored and rebuilt under his rule so that many times it's referred to as Herod's temple, which is in and of itself blasphemy. He was also paranoid. Herod, you see, uh, as it became later in his rule, actually killed many of his close associates, a wife and two sons. His paranoia was that great that he wanted to protect his throne, protect his turf, and he would do anything and everything to accomplish that. We need to understand a little bit about King Herod as we, as we picture this story and the contrast between these magi, these wise men who came from the east, and, and this king whose name was Herod. For you see, the wise men, when they followed the star, they came to Jerusalem first. They came to Herod's palace first, because where else are you going to find a newborn king except in a palace? But the newborn king wasn't there. Although we did get the impression that Herod was quite interested in this child. You see, he 
he brought in his wise men, the, the scholars, the Bible scholars of his time to say, okay, these guys are talking about a newborn king. For you see, in their thinking, they looked at the stars, they saw this new star in the sky, and, and they, they went back and found references based on the location of that star in the Hebrew scriptures, because this new star indicated that something grand had happened, the birth of a new king. And so it's that way. And they left to go find this new king of the Jews, and they came to the palace to look for him. And Herod didn't know anything about it, but he was eager to find out. And his reasoning was he wanted to go and worship him. Now remember, Herod is a wicked and paranoid man. He had no intention of worshiping this newborn king. In fact, if we continue to read in Matthew's gospel, what we discover is this. He intended to murder him. And in fact, ended up wiping out all the children, the male children, two years and under, who lived in Bethlehem in order to try to get to this child. He wanted no rivals to his throne, no rivals to his kingship. He certainly did not accept Jesus as king but these wise men were different. And I, instead of putting all of our attention on, on Herod, which is an interesting case study, I'd like us to focus our attention on what we might learn about worship from these magi, what we might learn about worship from these wise men. And I'd like to share three things with you this morning that I think can help us. What can we learn from the worship of these magi? First of all, their worship was a determined worship. Their worship was determined. You see, these guys didn't just drive across the street. They didn't take, hop a plane or get on a bus or all pile into the suburban. In order to make this journey, it was a long and arduous journey requiring a great deal of preparation, and, and there was quite a bit of danger involved. You see, in that time, there were bands of thieves that would, would roam through the land. And if they found a caravan, which most certainly this would have been, that would have been a great target for them to hit, to try to, uh, you see, these, these caravans would come across on these trade routes and the thieves would want to strike at them. It was, it's kind of like in the, the Old West with the stagecoach or the train and, and these band of thieves would come and, and try to, to rob the train or to rob the the, uh, the stagecoach. This is very much the same thing. So there was a very real danger in taking a trip like this that could have conceivably taken anywhere between 3 and 12 months, even longer with the preparations that would have gone in to get something like this. This was a big, big deal. But they were determined to be there. They would let nothing dissuade them from being there. They were not deterred by the journey nor were they deterred when they didn't find this newborn king in a palace. They didn't turn around and head for home thinking, well, if he's not here, he can't be anywhere. They were going to finish their journey to go and worship the king. So it's the first thing we want to learn about their worship. They were determined in their worship. The second thing that we can learn is that their worship was costly. Their worship was costly. Not only did it cost a great deal for the journey itself, they brought gifts with them, expensive gifts with them. Among those gifts were gold. 
We don't need a lot of explanation. We kind of know what gold is, don't we? I don't know if the gold, you know, what the value was at that time, what the going rate, what the market value was, but gold is, was then as it is now a precious commodity and highly valued. To bring the gift of gold was significant, but that wasn't the only gift that was brought. They also brought the gift of incense, or in the King James, frankincense. Incense itself is a glittering, odorous gum which was used among other things, to anoint kings and to make offerings to deities. This was a very precious, expensive gift. The third gift that they brought was the gift of myrrh, another highly prized spice and perfume, which was also used in embalming the dead. These were very precious gifts that they brought. And it was the custom in that time, if you were going to visit a dignitary, depending on their significance, was the amount of the gift that you brought. If you were just going to visit some petty dictator over in some podunk country over there, you might take a little bit of gold. You might, you know, offer some camels. You you know, you may give a small gift. But if you were going to visit the big king, the most powerful, mighty king on the face of the planet, my goodness, you would want to bring an an extravagant gift, a huge gift, a big gift. So we can imagine if these men had studied the Hebrew Scriptures and saw this bright star, this brilliant star in the sky to signify that he had come, that this was God's king, that they would have gone out of their way to empty the coffers to bring Precious, precious gift for this king. Now, you may have read, and, and I've read also in commentaries and books about these magi, a few things that you just might want to note. First of all, um, it's doubtful they were kings. That's kind of a misunderstanding that they were kings. They were magi. Some people have called them simple astrologers, but that, that certainly goes nowhere uh, close to what they were. They were astronomers. They certainly mixed that with some mysticism. But they, these men were, were, were scientists. They were truth seekers. That's what they were after. And so the word magi, from which we get magician, it can rightly be translated wise man. They, they're also, we, you know, we, we sing, we three kings from Orient are. Well, we really don't know if there were three. We know there were three gifts. We don't know how many magi there were. There could have been a dozen. There could have been two. We, we just don't know. Church history goes in and even places names on these men. But we, we don't know if that's, you know, what, whether that's embellished. We have no idea whether that is, is accurate. But we do know that they brought precious gifts. Now, you may have read that, that gold is a gift for a king and that incense was the gift for a god, and that myrrh was for burying the dead. And certainly these all have significance with Jesus, who was king, who was God in the flesh, and who certainly did come in order to die. But to give the, these magi that much credit may be going a little bit too far. I have no idea whether they understood this or not. But this is what they did understand they knew that their their worship their worship of this newborn king led them to give very costly gifts to honor the baby jesus they knew he was special 
And therefore, they were willing to give costly gifts in order to worship him. The third thing we can learn about this, about worship from them, is that their worship was humble. Now, we hear the word worship, and we may think of standing and raising our hands. We may think of dancing in the aisle. We may think of singing out loud. We may think of, of bowing quietly in our rooms. That worship, word worship in the English has many meanings. But to them, uh, the word worship meant to prostrate oneself. Now, I want you to picture this in your minds. I want you to think about this. Here they are, these, um, these wise men, dressed very elaborately, one might imagine, in the finest of clothing, carrying expensive gifts, likely with gold rings and chains and just adorned to the absolute max. Something they might see on, a, on an ancient... Near Eastern red carpet event. And here they are in the humble home of a carpenter. You see, they've moved out of the stable. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go home and and take your your, magi, your kings, away from your nativity scene. Well, I mean, maybe you can take them and just sit them on the other side of the room. Because this Christmas story is not about the Magi being there, and so we'll live with a little anachronism, but they came after the stable. They came after Mary and Joseph had moved into a home. That's where they said they came. They came to a home. And when they came, they worshipped him. But you need to understand, this worship means to prostrate oneself. You know what that means? It means to lie face down before someone who is superior to you. Here, these men, dressed in the world's finest clothing, in the humblest of circumstances, with a small toddler there, perhaps on Mary's lap, dressed in common clothing that a carpenter could afford. These men, who had traveled that great distance, lay face down before this Infant king. That requires humility. Now as we think about our Christmas, there's some questions that we might, well, let me me get you to fill out your blank here first. They saw beyond the common things and they embraced Jesus as king. I want to ask some questions as we think about their worship some questions that we need to ask about our own worship as we wrap up and put a a bow on this Advent conspiracy, at least the messages. First of all, are we determined to worship no matter what? It is, I've been there. I know what it's like, but there's so many folks that will let anything and everything get in the way of opening God's Word and reading it, spending time in prayer, or for gathering with God's people for worship. What we see in these magi was a sense of determination that they were going to worship no matter the cost. And it is my hope and prayer as we consider the true meaning of Christmas that we could bring ourselves to the place where we would say, no matter the cost, I am determined to be a worshiper and to worship fully. I am determined to give my worship. I'm not going to let distractions get in the way. I'm not going to let anything get in the way or deter me from worshiping the king, 
The second thing, the second question is this. Is our worship costly? Sadly, for many of us, we give to Jesus what is convenient, what is at hand, what is left over. These magi prepared probably for months for a journey of this magnitude and then had to go to their ATM and withdraw a lot in order to prepare these gifts in order to bring. But for us, our worship can sometimes be so unplanned, unprepared. We don't really sacrifice anything. I still remember the story of King David after his sin and after he'd been caught in his sin and this this plague just swept through the land and, and David finally just went to the Lord and he said, please stop this, please stop it. And the Lord stopped right there at the threshing floor of a guy named Aruna. And, and David was so grateful that God had stopped this plague that he said, what I want to do is, is I want to make an offering. And so he went in and he offered to, to buy the, the, the ox to slaughter, to buy the wood, to buy the land in order to, to, in order to offer this sacrifice. And Aruna said, no, wait a second. I'll give you everything that you want. You can have the ox. You can have the yoke. You can have, you can have the land. You can have it all in order to make your sacrifice to God. And David's reply was very simple. He said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord anything that costs me nothing. Because it's not a sacrifice. Is our worship costly? Or is it simply something that is convenient? And the third question that we can ask as we consider these magis, do we worship humbly? Now, quite frankly, most of us have our needs met. We have a roof over our head, clothes on our back, and groceries in the refrigerator. That's not true for all of us. Some of you here are struggling mighty mightily just to make ends meet, to get from one day to the next. But for those of us who have what we need, it is so easy to become self-sufficient and even, in a sense, proud. And we fail to rely on the Lord for our daily bread. I've got this, God. You can just kind of sit this one out. I can get through this week. I don't need you and we wouldn't dare say that out loud but sometimes our lifestyles indicate that we fail to recognize that we are needy people the gospel of luke as jesus is sharing those words that we call the beatitudes he said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god blessed are those who recognize their need For theirs is the kingdom of God. God's word says the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humble heart. And then in James 4, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Did we enter this place this morning in a sense of self-sufficiency? Or did we come as a people? in need. May God give us the humble spirit displayed by those magi. This Christmas is a season for giving. Most of you have all your shopping done. 
Some of you have all your gifts wrapped. You're ready for the big exchange. You're ready for Christmas morning. There's nothing wrong with exchanging gifts among those you love to express your love for them. Many of you during this Advent conspiracy have taken it a step further and you've said, I, don't, I not only want to look at my own family, I want to look beyond myself. I want to look out into the community with people who have needs and I want to begin to meet those needs. And some of you have done this without the cards and some of you have used the little cards to express God's love to other people. As far as I know, if there are any, there are only a handful of cards remaining out on the table out there which means that during the course of these last four weeks, you have picked up 480 Advent conspiracy cards. That perhaps during the course of these last few weeks, 400 or more acts of God's love have been expressed to people and many done without the cards. In other words, for us, this season of giving has gone beyond just those who are closest to us. But we begin to look outside ourselves and to follow the model of God who in John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave. And you and I have taken that pattern and we begin to follow it in our own lives. That we are giving and we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. I hope and pray that for some of you it has ignited something in you uh, that you will want to continue not just at Christmas, but throughout the year. But you see, this season of giving is about something else. It's about giving Jesus our hearts. It is about coming along with those magi and laying prostrate at his feet. It is about giving to him fully of our worship. Not letting anything get in the way, being absolutely determined that we will be worshipers. It is about giving in a costly way that it doesn't matter what the Lord requires of me. I am willing to give and I will not give a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And it is about humility. As we acknowledge that even if we have money in the bank, food on the table and clothes on our backs that we are completely and utterly needy before him. We get illustrations of this all the time, where you can have everything going your way. Life seems to have all the pieces fitting in just the right order, and then somebody grabs your Rubik's Cube and starts twisting. Something happens in your life that mixes up and messes up your life. I think about Jim and Diana Painter as they... So they pray for and try to be with Jared as much as they could, how his life seemed to have the pieces all together. And then a diagnosis of leukemia. Things change forever. And it's at that, why does it get, why do we have to get to that point before we come to understand just how needy we are? Just how reliant on the Lord we are? These men, these magi who had everything when they saw the star and they compared it to the scriptures and they came to understand that there's a king who's been born. They were determined to pay whatever price they could to lay at his feet face down and acknowledge you are king. What about us this morning?
Are we willing to go to whatever lengths it takes to pay whatever price there is in order to humble ourselves before King Jesus?